Good evening, everybody. I'm John Allen Gay, the executive director of the John Quincy Adams Society. Welcome back after a few weeks hiatus to another one of our Wednesday evening digital discussions. Tonight, we have with us Chris Chivas, director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who previously served as U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe. And we're going to be speaking about Ukraine in particular. And, uh, you know, we've been we're approaching a year of conflict there. And I think it's a good time to take stock uh, to look back and to also look forward and think about some of the things that may be in store in the coming year. So to start off, Chris, how does the situation in Ukraine look to you right now? I've been hearing some very different things uh, assessing, for instance, the military balance ranging from, you know, Ukraine might make a serious attempt at Crimea by the end of the year, all the way to, you know, the Russians uh, could be positioned to make some gains in the spring once their mobilization kicks in. It seems like a lot of people are kind of leaning toward the middle of some sort of stalemate. Uh, but I'm I'm curious where you would come down on some of these questions. Well, I think it's it's really the question du jour, isn't it, John? I mean, the 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 intel analyst in me wants to be sure that we don't try to predict the future. So I, for me, that's a starting point. We can't know for sure what's going to ha happen in Ukraine or in any kind of a situation like this. We need to um, conduct our analysis and our thinking with some degree of of humility, because I think as we've already seen in this conflict, um, there have been a lot of surprises. I mean, obviously, the failure of of Russia's initial attack on Kiev was a uh, was a surprise to to many of us, um, and I think um, obviously displayed some of the uh, the shortcomings in the uh, analysis that had been done over the course of se several years about uh, Russian mil conventional military capabilities, at least. Um, then again, uh, in the late summer, when the Ukrainians managed to break out and take Kharkiv uh, and part of Kherson. Uh, some of us were were also surprised, um, pleasantly surprised, because it was a nice thing uh, to see. I think um, I'm sure that uh, everyone who's on this call uh, in some way, shape or form sympathizes with the Ukrainians' plight. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of uh, where we are and what the reality is, it's been a year and there hasn't been any major change in 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 the battlefield other than the reversal of uh, Russia's initial attempt to take Kiev. Um, in the grand scheme of things, the the Ukrainian capture of Kharkiv was a uh, an impressive uh, operation, um, which was conducted with a, a great deal of help, I think, from the United States, including from uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence. Um, but nonetheless, only represents sadly a, a some you know uh you know relatively minor portion of the territory that Russia still occupies in the Donbas uh and of course uh Crimea which you mentioned um in your question so you know if we look ahead at scenarios i think it's really important um to recognize that the longer that this conflict goes on, the greater the chances that Russia could figure out some way to break through and um, either push back towards uh, Western Ukraine or even mount another 
ground assault on Kiev. This isn't the most likely scenario right now, but it's something that we shouldn't rule out. And I hope that um, decision makers in, in in Kiev are are cognizant and realistic about that as a as a possibility, even if it's a, a lower probability one. On the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, just from my conversations with people who are are following this very closely in the government, the 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 prospects for Ukraine to to take Crimea are extremely low, uh, given um, a, a range of factors um, right now. And the escalation risks would be, in my view at least, uh, very, very high. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball that explains what's happening in Vladimir Putin's head right now. But um, my guess is that uh, if there if there were a successful Ukrainian advance, uh, into into Crimea or even approaching it, we would see a very rapid uh, escalation of many kinds uh, from the Kremlin. So, you know, given that, I I do fall into the category uh, of those who see this as uh, very likely to be a, a long, drawn out, and costly war for the United States, for Europe, uh, and above all, of course, for Ukraine. And I think it's worth thinking about the costs, both in terms of, we often cite them in in, um, in terms of their financial costs. And it's true, the United States is authorized, as you know, $100 billion worth of support to Ukraine in, in, the, in the first year alone, which by my calculation is 2 million years of college tuition. So um, the costs are very, Costs are very real uh, for the U.S., but obviously the real costs are the human costs of the war, which I think is is too easy to forget. It's the um, potentially hundreds of thousands of people who have already died. We don't have good numbers, but it certainly could be that high if this war goes on for another year. Those are enormous numbers, but it's also the millions of Ukrainians who are um, going to be stuck perpetually in Europe, uh, especially weighing on countries like Poland if the war doesn't come to an end. So. It's yeah, it's a it's a sad way to start 2023, but these, in my view, um, and I think um, as you've pointed out, a growing number of others are the are just the just the the most realistic assessment of the situation. And for those of you in the audience, feel free to join in. Uh, we've got the Q and A feature open uh, at the bottom of your screen. Feel free to ask questions or upvote others' questions that you'd like to uh, that you'd like to hear. I'd like to kind of follow up on what you mentioned about escalation, uh, particularly uh, in the case of uh, you know significant Ukrainian gains uh, in the uh, in the east. You know, there have been some folks who have been saying, you know, this war has shown the limits of Russian power. It has weakened Russia further and their red lines have been getting crossed, you know, that they, they had had some very tough language about the kinds of support the West could provide and implying that really bad things would happen. They've said similar things around uh, the offensive on Kherson. And it seems like none of that has paid off. You know, there, there's a bit of an image taking hold in some circles of Russia as a bit of a, a paper tiger uh, when it comes to these, uh, to these, you know, the alleged red lines. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I think the Kremlin is is full of it, um, and that just because they say something is a red line doesn't mean it is a red line. 
That doesn't mean that they don't have red lines, though. And I think this is where the confusion lies in the discussion that you're talking about. Russians will make threats and then not follow through on them. Um, and so then people say, well, they must have no red lines. But this is, of course, not true. They're out there somewhere. We just don't know exactly where they are. And my own view is, has been that we ought to exercise caution um, in, as um, as Ukrainian forces advance. And I, and I think that's, you know, many other people, of course, share that view. Um, the, the, the question, I guess the thing that concerns me is, is it's partially about red lines and I would be I would be surprised if Crimea were not one. Um, but it's also a question of how it unfolds. I mean, if you look at the again, the the rapid advance of Ukrainian forces into Kharkiv in uh, at the end of the summer, um, that got the Kremlin's attention, right? And brought about a range of rhetorical statements, uh, nuclear saber rattling, uh, and the decision to do a partial mobilization. And so I think it is that these kinds of discontinuous advances or sudden uh, advances of Ukrainian forces that are most likely to, to bring about escalation, whereas a gradual grinding war um, is, is somewhat less risky. Um, but it's just also at this point in time, it's just not that likely to succeed, at least succeed in the terms that the Ukrainians themselves have laid out, which is to retake uh, not only the territory that they've lost over the course of the last year, but also all of the territory that they've lost to Russia since 2014. How might we figure out, you know, some at least get a basic grasp of where Russia's red lines might be? If they're not necessarily a reliable narrator on uh, on those red lines, you know, there have been folks who have been expressing concern that Russian signaling is not very clear these days. Uh, you know, which which raises concerns across a whole set of issues, not just Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I think the unpredictability of of Russia is um, is a, a just an area of concern. You know, and I think also. Our ability to understand the Kremlin hasn't been very good. And I, I, I should talk about a little bit maybe about you know, how I view the role of the intelligence community in all of this. The intelligence community did a fantastic job of warning about this invasion. And I think the Biden administration was rightly forward leaning in its release of uh, intelligence to the public and to allies in order to um, make the case that, yeah, this was really going to happen. And they were obviously fighting an uphill battle, given the um, the history of the Iraq war, which is such an important reference point for so many people. So I, I commend them for that. In general, the the and this is not so much the U.S. intelligence community as just the broader analytic and foreign policy community has gotten Russia wrong and has gotten Putin wrong a lot of times before. In 2014, it was Little Green Men, which seemed to us to be something that uh, was totally unthinkable. The idea that uh, a sovereign nation like Russia would do this um, silk glove uh, takeover of Crimea using special forces was something that we really had never contemplated. But when you looked at it afterwards, you said, well, of course they did. Why would they not do that? And similarly, with the Putin's decision to intervene in Syria, this was something that you know many many analysts believe would never happen. Why would why would he do this kind of a thing? But he did it anyway, 
Uh, and uh, we were we were wrong about it, and we were wrong about how long he would stay and how the war would play out for Russia. Again, in 2016, uh, the Russian uh, decision to try to influence the U.S. elections um, was also a massive surprise to many people. So my point is just that we've gotten Putin and Russia wrong many times just within the last decade. And I think this is in part because of the unpredictability of, of Russia, but it's also uh, a consequence of our own failure of imagination when it comes to thinking about what might be on, on Putin's mind. So when we're talking about escalation, I always like to keep that, um, again, that call for humility uh, in our own understanding uh, in mind. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot to be humble about uh, in these last uh, several months. We've got a question from Tom out of our Colorado College chapter. It says, what do you think would be the best response from the United States in terms of U.S. interests to a potential Ukrainian-Crimean offensive, either directly or to cut off supply via Zaporizhia? Uh, is it in our interest to support such a push or would be we be better off trying to you know, stop it? or uh, redirected or, or moderated or something like that? And, and would, would we even have that level of influence? Well, it's, it would be very difficult. I mean, so I, I would certainly not support a US decision to actively, I would not advise the United States to actively support that operation. To, to the contrary, I, I think that the United States should be more straightforward with the Ukrainians, that the United that um, we, we don't support their war objectives as, as stated, that we're uh, we have an interest in ensuring that they maintain their sovereignty and independence, but this doesn't include recapturing all of their territory and uh, and especially Crimea. So the question as posed has to do, you know, with say it happened anyway, uh, say the United States, you know, warned the Ukrainians not to move into Crimea, they did so anyway. It would be complicated, obviously, if they were relying primarily on U.S. Uh, U.S. weapons. We could try to tell them not to do it, but we wouldn't have that much influence in the near term on their operations. And I can think that if those operations were were going well and very successful, they would be pretty hard pressed to uh, to slow down. Uh, and frankly, the U.S. government would probably be divided. Because I think you would have some people uh, arguing at the decision-making table that we should allow the Ukrainians to go forward, and you would have we would have others who would be taking a position more similar to my own. So the the, the total effect um, were this kind of situation to arise, um, the U.S. influence in in that near term would be pretty pretty limited. We so could we stop providing them with intelligence. I guess is the one thing that we could do for strikes. Yeah, yeah. When well, we've got a question, you know, sticking on this theme of escalation and escalation risk, we've got a question from David uh, out of the University of Miami about uh, how willing Russia will be to tolerate the uh, increasing provision of advanced and effective weaponry. You know, and I think I think maybe we could reflect more broadly on some of these uh, increased provisions uh, of weapons, both in quantity and kind. You know, the uh, before the war, it, there was controversy in the Obama era 
about whether to provide, you know, Javelin anti-tank missiles and some fairly basic stuff, which now they have received in abundance and much more. You know, we recently agreed to provide the Patriot air defense system. There's been conversations about providing main battle tanks. I've started to hear some rumblings about uh, fighter aircraft again, uh, you know, and, and Zelensky and his speech in Congress alluded to this. He said, you know, Ukrainians are capable of operating tanks and, and aircraft and Congress pretty much as a whole stood up to applaud. Uh, you know, so there's there's concerns that folks have raised about escalation. Uh, there's concerns that folks have raised about, you know, some of these more advanced weapons falling into the hands of Russians or the Russians gaining combat experience or Mazint against these weapons as they're in operation, uh, that maybe the logistical support or the training support required for some of them would be excessive or get Americans into areas where we're at a much higher level of involvement in the conflict. I'm curious what your thoughts are around some of this weapons provision, whether you think those concerns are valid. I mean, I, I, my views on this have changed somewhat for the reason that you laid out, which is that some of these weapons have proven to be less escalatory than we initially feared than I would have expected a year ago. Um, so I'm a little less concerned than I was. On the other hand, if you're talking about weapons that have a, capability to strike you know deep into russian territory that th those are the ones that make me worried and that would include a range of things that the ukrainians are asking for but not getting for the biden administration such as obviously fighter aircraft uh, or attackums which has been a, a major point of debate um obviously there's a a number of people in washington who would like to see the ukrainians given attackums um, but uh, the administration so far has held the line on the grounds that the attackums have a range uh, which would be um, uh, too escalatory, and so have drawn the line on with the uh, with the HIMARS. But you know, I, I don't know what to say beyond that. I mean, there is a, there is a potential for escalation. We just don't know exactly where it is. Is what I said. As I said before, and it's important to proceed, you know, with with extreme caution in the provision of any additional weapons. I mean, the, the biggest weapon system that the Ukrainians have gotten recently is, of course, the Patriot missile system, which you can argue that because it provides them with defensive capability, it, it, it will allow them to strengthen their offense. But I think that in this case, given the the fact that their infrastructure is under assault from Russian air power, it's a little bit hard to, to make the case that it's really going to give them that much of an offensive advantage. And in that sense, we probably ought to look at the Patriot, Patriot system. After all, I think they're only getting, I don't remember, I think they're only getting one battery anyway, um, you know, as, as anything other than a, uh, basically a humanitarian, um, uh, you know, aiming towards a humanitarian objective of trying to protect citizens in Kiev. So let's let's turn for a moment to the political level of this conflict. You know, there's there's there were some recent you know talks about talks you might say or, or uh, overtures uh, that seem to have uh, have failed with the Ukrainians saying more or less we want the Russians to face a, an international tribunal and the Russians saying the Ukrainians need to accept. Uh, the new territory we've incorporated, and both sides saying that the other's offer was a non-starter. 
you know, so let's maybe look at some of these different political forces that are in play here, maybe starting with Russia. Is the Russian political system tiring of the war or battening down the hatches to, to go for the long haul? Is Putin in a stable position politically, you know, in, in terms of his own status as, as the leader of Russia? Uh, is Russia getting closer to negotiating? What are your thoughts? I mean, it's an enormous subject. I, I think that there are those who would argue that Putin has a firm grip on power and that he's not going to uh, relinquish it. There are those who would argue that it's very hard to tell what's actually going on inside of the Kremlin and what forces are weighing on him. For example, if we if we and there are certain indicators that might tell us that he has less of a grip on power than I think the majority view would hold. For example, if we were to see major protests in the streets of St. Petersburg and and Moscow, that that might be a sign that. There is uh, more going on uh, that threatens his grip on power than we can see from the outside, but it's it's very hard to know. So again, here I think we have to, you know, proceed with some caution, whether in making predictions about his imminent demise, which is a position that some people, um, you know, especially of the sort of coming from a, a more neoconservative background would like to make. In other words, that we can put enough pressure on Russia in Ukraine in order to organize the uh, collapse of the regime as a whole. And in their way of looking at the world, thereby forward major US interests. Um, on the other hand, um, those who say that, to those who say that there's no chance whatsoever that Putin would ever lose his grip on power, I think I probably come closer to that perspective in in my own thinking but would still want to keep open the possibility that you know uh he probably faces more pressure than we recognize from forces that we may not fully understand in his own effort to control the security forces uh and to control the economy which he needs in order to be able to pay out uh you know payoffs to keep his uh to keep his corrupt system going um, and that we ought to think about, um, you know, the possibility that a he he might be ready to do something crazy if we put uh, enough pressure on him, such as use a nuclear weapon, employ a nuclear weapon on the battlefield, um, and then alternatively that he may actually be more open to negotiations than he um, than he appears to be in public, because obviously it's in his interest to act in public as if. He intends to fight this war forever and has no uh, has no real um, no real interest in negotiations. Maybe that's the case, but my own view is that we just we just can't know until we um, until we get more information. And probably uh, the only way that we're going to get that information is with the serious effort to try to bring this war to some kind of a negotiated conclusion, even if it's a temporary truce. So how about the Ukrainian side? You know, if, if we do see something like a battlefield stalemate, might they start turning toward negotiating? Would they require perhaps, uh, you know, U.S. pressure or Western pressure to turn that 
military situation into a political situation where they're willing to negotiate. Uh, is Zelensky popular enough or powerful enough mm-hmm. to make a deal that is well short of total victory? Yeah, I think you're right to mention the fact that Zelensky has his own politics that he has to deal with. Wars like this tend to favor nationalism and extreme nationalism. And obviously the Ukrainians, as has been said rightly by many people, are fighting for their their homeland. Um, It is, uh, you know, not surprising that they want to fight on. And it's not surprising that they um, that they have the maximalist views that they do. Um, But the reality, as we talked about a few minutes ago, is that they're not going to be able to to achieve their stated war objectives without a lot of help from the West, a lot more help than we're already giving them. And we don't have uh, a, a, a vital national interest that would justify the potential escalation risks of providing them with that help. And so as a result, what I've said, and, and most people disagree with me about this, to be honest, but is that it's time to start having some hard conversations with the Ukrainians. Even as we continue to support them, um, we need to to point out these realities to them um, and uh, point out the fact that, like it or not, U.S. and Western support is not open-ended, and that's just the political realities in our own systems, and that they need to start thinking about ways that they can prepare their own publics and their own their own politics uh, for some kind of uh, of a negotiated end to this conflict, which would obviously be extraordinarily difficult uh, for them. Yeah. Like, do, do you think that they can hold together if they do that? Because, they, you know, pre pre-war, uh, certainly in the more of the 2014 period, there were a lot of uh, militias and such that had to be integrated into into the state armed forces. And, you know, it seems like there'd be open questions about whether phenomena like that might emerge. You know, there there have certainly been cases like, say, Ireland, where a peace deal didn't really work in this in the way people expected because some of the folks just wanted to keep on fighting regardless of what the government says. You know, do they have do they have the the unitary uh, power to be able to hold together through a hard decision like that? I mean, I imagine that um it would be difficult, but my sense is is that they that they would that the centralization of control, Zelensky's own popularity as a figure, uh, provides him with the maybe you know in the event that there were a, a, a negotiated truce of some kind that the United States, European Union backed, and were pouring in major amounts of post-conflict funding, that it would be possible to control any any defectors on the Ukrainian side. Whether it would be possible to control the real problem, of course, with the Minsk Accords was controlling defectors on so-called defectors on the Russian side. I'm not sure that they were actually defecting so much as uh, doing what um, what the Kremlin wanted. But um, you you would potentially have those same those same challenges again. But you wouldn't have the large scale conventional war in Europe that's going on right now. So we've got a question from Emmanuel who asks about uh, potential unintended consequences or downsides to you know a, a strong Ukrainian victory. You know, it asks, uh, does Europe run the risk of an even more unstable Russia 
Or could we see Moscow and Beijing get more cooperative with one another, given Russia's struggles? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think we already have seen the latter, right? One of the consequences of this war is that it's it's pushed Russia more into China's hands. And I think that from a Chinese perspective, it's hard not to imagine them, you know, being very happy about what's happened in Ukraine because it has weakened Russia and made them more subservient. And it's also distracted the United States from what uh, is its 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 major long-term strategic challenge, which is addressing um, addressing the rise of China in some constructive way. And so I think, yes, as to the the, the first question about whether or not it uh, it has weakened Russia to Europe's um, to Europe's detriment, I think yes, there is truth in that. But obviously, it's Russia's own fault because they're the ones who invaded Ukraine. So I don't know that Europe really, or the United States for that matter, has that much that that they can that they can really have done to avoid it. The question is over the the medium and long term horizon when we're thinking about what the relationship with Russia might be in the 2030s and 2040s. Will Russia look like? you know, Iran or North Korea, which is the trajectory that it's on right now? Or is there some way that we can imagine a, a, a relationship between Europe and Russia that is, um, while, you know, not not good, at least not as unstable as uh, as it might be? Yeah, you know, I was I was over in uh, Eastern Europe a few months ago, and you know, some of the conversations I had there, I, I I'm kind of curious. I, I think some of the people there might say, "Isn't a whole lot of Russian weakness a good thing? Like, should why should we want, uh, you know, a relationship with?" Uh, with them that is based on on really anything other than their isolation you know why not squeeze them out of europe and kind of make them sit in the corner a la north korea well i don't think they've been to seoul recently but it's i mean it's under threat of north korean artillery i mean i i i think you know obviously you know you can take you know nato member states, NATO nations have an interest in Russia being uh, somewhat weak. But it turns out it actually was at least somewhat weak militarily. It turns out it already was a lot weaker than we thought. So the concern is that if you weaken Russia economically and politically too much, you'll end up with an unpredictable basket case with nuclear weapons. And that's obviously not in the interests of, of security of anyone. Now, the frontline states in Europe, if you're talking about Poland and the Baltic states, for example, they are most concerned about the conventional threat because they face it most directly. So to them, their primary interest is in uh, ensuring that that conventional threat is reduced to a minimum. But I don't think if you talk to serious analysts, even in a country as hawkish as Poland, that they would take the idea of an, an unstable Kremlin as being good for their security. An unstable and unpredictable Kremlin over which Europe has no leverage is not going to be particularly helpful to their future, uh, to their own future security. So we have to figure out some way to, you know, to uh, to right the circle, uh, right, you know, to to make all of these things work together and find the right balance. And it's not entirely 
uh, in the control of of, of uh, Western leaders to to do it, and certainly not right at the second. Yeah, well, you know, I think that we've navigated that question of Russian weakness before. You know, with things like the cooperative threat reduction program and uh, similar things after the after the Cold War, where there were concerns generated by the the kind of uh, collapse uh, of the Soviet Union uh, that we thought were created new kinds of threats that we faced. And uh, we have a question in from Justin. I think this is the Justin from our Texas from Texas A and M. Uh, who said, you know, the West saw Russia in the 90s as a kind of new normal, and Russia saw its weakened state as temporary. Would you say that people on our side did not appreciate the kind of disconnect about like what the future of the world order was going to look like and what Russia's place in it would be, and that that might be part of the story of this conflict? Well, I think that people did have an idea of what Russia's place in the future world order was going to be. If you're looking at U.S. policy in the early 1990s, um, after the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union receded, and the natural impulse, which was perfectly logical at the time, was to try to expand democracy. It was an era of where democratic peace theory was really the reigning paradigm in thinking both in the in the U.S. Uh, Republican and, and Democratic Party. If you go back and read the national security strategies from that era, um, that was the way that we looked at the world uh, 30 years ago. And, and it made sense. I mean, because suddenly there was this big, you know, um, vacuum where the Soviet Union had exercised its power. And so the idea was, is that it made sense to try to fill it with uh, democracies and uh, states that were friendly to, to the United States and the European Union. The, the problem was that uh, in some cases, and most importantly in the case of Russia, it was it turned out to be completely unrealistic. And the economic and political programs, reform programs that were put in place in Russia in the early 1990s were a complete failure because the the well, we can get into the reasons why, but just say they were a complete failure. And as a result, when I moved to Moscow in 1999, there was already a clear sense, not only of national humiliation, but also of uh, of the abject failure of what they believed to be Western liberal democratic reforms. And that was the environment, as I think some of you may be aware, in which Vladimir Putin came to power. And so it was it was uh, it was a failure to uh, understand the extent to which our own ability to reshape other societies, in this case, Russia, um, was was in fact limited. So we did have a vision for it. It just turned out to be an unworkable one. And that's the disconnect that has uh, in some ways gotten us to where we are today. So staying with some of these you know, kind of bigger political historical questions, you know, we've there's been growing questions in some circles, particularly with the new Congress taking uh, taking its seats uh, in these last few days. I think they're not officially not, seats, not officially members of the check. House. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, there's been there's been questions about whether support is holding strong uh, here in the United States, in the West more broadly. I mean, again, some of the folks in the in the East of Europe would say, "Well, look, there's a there's a justice camp." in Europe that wants to punish Russia for what it's done. There's a peace camp that wants to kind of be rid of this conflict. Uh, how do you see the the politics in the West playing out around all of this? Well, I mean, I, I think that in the United States, 
many of us were surprised by the outpouring of support for Ukraine when Russia initially invaded it in February of last year. And I think it speaks well to the, um, you know, the, the good natured character that animates American society. And that, um, you know, just the fact that you're, you're ordinary American, if there is such a thing, is basically a sympathetic person who can see when, you know, one people are getting bullied by another. Now, that very high level of support, however, has, um, has steadily declined over the course of the last year. If you look at opinion polling um, in March of last year, as opposed to June, as opposed to more recent polling in the fall. And when you combine that decline in public opinion polling with the, the fact that both on the uh, left and on the right in Congress, we've obviously seen statements that suggest that support, American support for Ukraine is limited. It's pretty clear that, you know, that that there's going to be, you know, a, a continued decline. I mean, perhaps there's a floor somewhere. We don't know where it is, but it's never going to be as high as it was in February or March of, of last year, unless, you know, Putin comes to the Ukrainians rescue by doing something extremely stupid, like, you know, murdering a bunch of people with chemical weapons or something like that. I mean, then you might again see a spike in uh, and U.S. willingness to support the Ukrainians. You might see increased pressure on the administration to take actions, which, um, you know, which would be reactionary and we could get into a very dangerous kind of an escalation. Um, but I think that, you know, we we have a similar dynamic uh, in Europe, although I, I'm not as up on the public opinion polling in Europe itself, but obviously an initial outpouring of support and uh, discussion about major strategic reorientation in in German foreign policy thinking uh, appears to be moving uh, again towards the back burner over the course of the last few months. Uh, similarly, in Southern European states, which have traditionally had uh, a more, um, a less critical view, let's say, of, of Russia than their East European allies in Spain and in, in Italy, there are obviously signs of waning support. Um, and I would imagine that the, the, the rifts between those countries and the East Europeans is is likely to is likely to continue to grow over the course of 2023, if this war, uh, as it's like as it's apt to do, uh, continues the way that it has been. What sort of peace deal do you think could be possible, and what and what do you think would be what the United States should aim for? You know, I know you've talked about how maybe we don't want to have you know full restoration of uh of ukrainian sovereignty over all of ukraine's you know pre-2014 territory given some of the risks around that what do you think we should be aiming for in terms of a peace here we should be aiming for a ceasefire first and foremost i mean there's a uh you know there's a the russians have for many years um, you know, tried to get the United States to in, engage with them in a broad discussion of the future of European security architecture that involves things like substantially weakening NATO. And, and it, it, that's just silly. That's that's not going to happen. The United States isn't and shouldn't go for it, and, and neither would any of our allies. Um, so just to be clear, that's not what I would recommend as uh, as a as a negotiation. 
I think the objective for, for any negotiation right now would be to try to get localized ceasefires, to try to get, um, you know, maybe some kind of confidence building and transparency measures back and forth between the forces on the ground. Um, ideally, some kind of even some kind of a, a pullback of um, of forces from the lines of conflict to try to just to try to, to tamp down on on the violence for the time being. You know, it, even doing something like that, which is localized to Ukraine, would be would be very difficult, would be very hard to do. But but you know, it, it would it 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 could at least provide provide an opening to some kind of a larger uh beginning of a larger set of of discussions about about Ukraine, which are which would which would be extremely difficult and, and play out over the course of many years. And the fighting might start again during that time. And and all of those things are real. But it still would be better than another year of violence of the kind that has gone over over the course of the last year and all of the costs and attendant risks that would come with it. So I'm realistic about you know, the fact that it's not easy, um, the fact that it could fail, and the fact that we would have to shoot low. But I still think it's better to do that than to just allow this to go on the way that it has, which I don't think is going to benefit, is going to benefit anyone. One of our attendees asks, uh, circling back to the human cost, several high-level Russian generals have been killed. What's the long-term effect of those kinds of losses going to be on uh, on their war effort, on their politics, uh, on potential emergence of dissent within the Russian military or Russian government? That's a good question. I don't know that I have a very good a very good answer. You know, I don't know enough about the specific importance of those uh, of the generals who were killed to know to what extent it would make a difference on Russian politics. I'm inclined to say it's not going to have that much of an impact um, because they're they're unlikely to have been you know significant players in Putin's inner circle. So we've got another uh, another question about um, uh, the possibility of prosecuting Russian officers or generals for war crimes in order to weaken and complicate Russia's current endeavors. You know, and just to zoom out more broadly, you know, this this has been a, uh, a Ukrainian goal is to have you know a, a kind of uh, justice element to the resolution of the conflict. And I know with with some other conflicts, there have been controversies about whether. Uh, you know, legal consequences for individuals at high levels uh, of of decision making and operations is helpful or harmful to the prospects of uh, establishing peace. What are, what are your thoughts? I don't know here? that there's much of a controversy about that. It's just not. I mean, you know, in cases where you have where you're trying to negotiate, as I mean, it's so it's one thing in the Balkans where there's a, uh, you know, there's a, the United States steps in and intervenes and then sets up, you know, war crimes tribunals or after World War II, where the United States, you know, and the Western um, powers had, you know, absolute victory and were able to set up, you know, different kinds of justice tribunals. Uh, That's not going to happen. I don't see that happening with Russia. I, I just don't, I, I, it's very hard for me to imagine the circumstances under which Russia is willing to ex- accept that. I mean, it's not something that the United States accepts. I don't see. I just. I don't see it. So I, I'm afraid that despite the, the fact that there is a um, 
you know, there is a there is an argument to be made that, you know, s- s- Russia has, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me has committed um, war crimes in in this in this prosecution of this war. Um, you know, th- that is this, that is something which I would say should be done in parallel to uh, any kind of a negotiation, but but should should not hold the negotiation hostage. And my concern about the way that I interpret some statements by the Ukrainian government is that they expect that there would be that that kind of a a, a process would be part and parcel of negotiations, which I think would be extremely uh, extremely difficult. I'm not saying it shouldn't sure. happen, mind you. I'm just saying, practically speaking, it's it, it's very hard for me to imagine how that could be part of a, a serious uh, negotiation. Yeah, and I think even just the practicalities, you know, I don't think a lot of these guys are going to be, you know, I don't think you're going to see Sorovkin uh, on the French Riviera or something anytime soon. Um, so we've got a question from an attendee. Uh, how do you think the roles of China, Turkey, and Israel will evolve uh, over the course of this conflict? And particularly, you know, given some of these different directions the war could go if it if ukraine starts winning if russia starts winning you know for instance the recent change in government in israel has has raised questions about what their line uh on this conflict is going to be some indicators they might take a a softer stance on russia um yeah the israeli government is is a whole other can of worms um and certainly it's it's possible it's very unpredictable what they're what they're going to do um you know tur- turkey i and in china are i think more important though um i think the with regard to turkey turkey would like to play a would like to sort of have its cake and eat it too and and argue to nato that it can play the role of a constructive interlocutor which it was actually able to do in the case of the the grain deal, which permitted the Ukrainian export of grain and and thus uh, staved off a potentially massive uh, global food crisis, and so it, it it has played that role to some degree, and it it does have you know probably at least a much greater willingness to talk to Vladimir Putin. I mean, uh, President Erdogan has a much greater willingness to talk to President Putin than pretty much any other. Western uh, Western leader, with the possible exception of Viktor Orban, so in that sense, they could potentially be be of some be of some use. But you know, it's only as an interlocutor; they don't really deliver anything that the uh, that the Russians would want uh, or need. And their credibility with their NATO allies has obviously uh, gone through the floor on account of their um, their interest in in holding up. Finland and Sweden's uh, accession to NATO on, you know, for for utterly unrelated domestic political reasons. I mean, even even though you can raise, you know, I have raised questions about the the, the process uh, that Finland and Sweden followed towards accession in NATO, um, but I would not I would not say that what Turkey is doing is um, is is it all fair or in spirit of being a good ally? Because what they are doing is holding up Finland and Sweden's um, accession data for entirely unrelated reasons that have to do with their bilateral relationship with Sweden in particular. So, you know, it, it's difficult with, with Turkey. With with China, the big question is how far are they willing to go to support the Russians, right? 
So it's clear President Xi in the last couple of weeks has restated his political support for President Putin. Um, and that's obviously very valuable in and of itself to Putin. As far as I'm I'm aware, the Chinese have not provided any lethal weapons to uh, to the Russians. If they did decide to do that, that would obviously be a very big step. And I think they know it. I think they know that it would turn a lot of European public opinion against China. And so they're going to try to walk a sort of tight tightrope between helping Putin as much as they can get away with um, uh, as long as it doesn't uh, doesn't infuriate Europe, which which they would like to split from the United States, um, given that they increasingly, I think, see uh, the hope of a U.S. taking a less hostile position uh, towards Beijing as as uh, as potentially a, a lost cause at this point. I've got a question from Jack. What do you see as the options for the Russian military and state to up the ante and get their military effort back on track? Or are there any options? Well, it's a good question. I mean, the the, 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 the big, so there's two ways that, that there's a couple of different things that they can do. So there's a question about their ability to uh, to restock uh, and resupply their, their military. We had hoped that the, the, the blow that they've taken, plus the sanctions, uh, the embargo on microelectro, the sanctions on microelectronics exports, um, would together mean that they had much lower stocks, especially of advanced weapons, than than they actually appear to have. I saw that the Ukrainian, the New York Times was earlier today had a headline saying that the Ukrainians claim that they're running out of guided munitions, and maybe their stocks are low. But there's also, I'm not sure whether you know, the Ukrainian Ukrainian public statements by Ukrainian intelligence agencies are a very good source, uh, and certainly not an unbiased source of this kind of information. And there's been good independent research that indicates that the Russians are continuing to produce their, uh, their KH-101s, their high-end cruise missile, despite the fact that they, they don't get uh, Western microchips anymore. So there's a little bit of uncertainty about whether or not they'll how how long and to what extent they'll be able to keep up the production of their high end their high end weaponry, but the problem, of course, is that if they run out of high end weaponry. They'll probably just go down the ladder and use larger quantities of lower end weapons, which will just mean more civilian casualties uh, and more and more destruction. I mean, after all, that's basically the approach that they've taken by mobilizing, um, you know, three hundred thousand reservists and 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 throwing them uh, into the battle in some cases without very much training. So, what I would expect to see the Russians do is to uh, is to go down to go down. They can do a couple things. One is to con- to continue to 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 produce on some level their advanced weaponry. Uh, two, which I didn't mention, is they, they've had some success in procuring weapons, obviously, from Iran and from North Korea. Uh, and it's been more difficult than we would like to try to stop that because, you know, obviously we don't have a whole lot of extra leverage over Iran and North Korea right now. Um, and then third, uh, as they even as they run out, they'll just um, resort to more old-fashioned and probably brutal means to prosecute the war. Got a question from Thomas. What do you think are the costs of this war to Russia compared to the cost of Afghanistan? Afghanistan. The, the Russian war in Afghanistan. Uh, um, well, I mean, I think the 
you know, the, the the hope would be that the Russians are bogged down in Ukraine the way that they were in Afghanistan, and that this puts pressure on the 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 Russian system and leads to some kind of a transformation in their thinking. The, the, the problem with that line of argument is that there were so many other factors that brought about the the Glasnost and Perestroika, which ultimately led to the end of the the end of the Cold War. There were many other contextual political economic factors, political and economic factors uh, that were in play that it's hard to draw a direct parallel between the strategic consequences of uh, between what the strategic consequences of Ukraine might be for Russia and what they were in in Afghanistan. Um, you know, certainly, you know, the longer the war goes on in Ukraine, it is true that this is costing Russia. And that's that's not a bad thing, although I do, I. I I would caution, as I did a few minutes ago, that there is a point at which um, it could create instability in in Russia, and we need to think seriously about whether or not that's really something that we want, um, because a, a a coup in the Kremlin, you know, might turn out to be a good thing for us if miraculously some kind of a, a liberal leaning, uh, you know, reform minded, you know, Europhilic successor to Putin emerges, but it just doesn't seem that likely, you know, more likely we would either have chaos, which is usually dangerous in a country with nuclear weapons, or we would have someone who was equally, if not, if not more of a, of a nasty autocrat with an ax to grind uh, about NATO. Let's get a, another question from, uh, from one of our attendees, agree or disagree, a generation of sanctioned pariah Russia would significantly reduce the threat of their currently formidable nuclear weaponry by making them unable to bear the costs of maintenance at current sizes and unable to develop new technology to overcome anti-nuclear weapon systems such as our own. So there's two parts there. I mean, one is about, so on, um, so the, the, I think this is not so much anti-nuclear weapon systems as um, uh, American uh, missile defense systems. And so one of the, the the things that we have said repeatedly to the Russians about our missile defense system is that it doesn't have any capability against Russian strategic nuclear weapons because the numbers are are too high. And that's true. Our, our, um, our missile defense, I worked on this quite extensively when I was in the Pentagon, our missile defense systems have a capability against a couple of Iranian or North Korean missiles being shot at the United States. And that's, you know, that's a good thing as long as they don't have too many, but we don't really have any significant capability against uh, uh, if, if Russia decided to shoot off a thousand warheads at the United States, a thousand missiles or you know, of some form at the United States, we would not be able to shoot all of them down. It's just, that's not what the system is designed for. Um, so I, I wouldn't see a major change in that uh, if Russia um, were to, you know, to to experience a, a sustained economic downturn, which is what I think it probably will experience as a consequence of the sanctions. It's just not going to be as bad as we initially had had hoped it would be. With regard to the maintenance of the of their nuclear forces, I, I think that they're going to go to great lengths in order to ensure that that's possible. This is not a free market economy. It's an economy in which the 
central government can spend the money, spend money on what it wants to spend it on. And I, I, I can guarantee you probably more than anything else that I've said that they're going to view nuclear weapons after this as their ultimate guarantee of security. And they're not going to allow anything to happen to them uh, that would draw into doubt their, the readiness of their, of their strategic nuclear forces. So I'll, I'll close with the question that we ask all of our guests at the end. What's one piece of advice that you would give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps professionally? If we're thinking from in college, I mean, take your time, I guess. I remember feeling in, in, in college and in the couple of years after I graduated from college, it's enormous pressure as if every decision that I made was going to sort of, you know, close off opportunities that I might have, or that the whole future of my life depended upon whether or not I got the next job that I got, um, or, or or some other job. And I think that it's it's helpful to take some of that pressure off of yourself in the first few years after you graduate from college. Do high quality work. Believe in your capacity to to learn and to achieve excellence. But don't worry too much about whether or not you're doing exactly the right thing at that time. Just do a really good job at whatever it is that you're doing and be ready to adjust when new opportunities open up for you. I completely agree. We've been speaking with Chris Chivas, Director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you, Chris. And thank you to all of you for attending and tuning in. Thanks, everybody.